This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 5, Chapter 4, Part 1, The Critic It appears a point of some mystery to the present writer that Bernard Shaw should have been so long unrecognized and almost in beggary. I should have thought his talent was of the ringing and arresting sort, such as even editors and publishers would have sense enough to seize. Yet it is quite certain that he almost starved in London for many years, writing occasional columns for an advertisement or words for a picture. And it is equally certain, it is proved by twenty anecdotes, but no one who knows Shaw needs any anecdotes to prove it, that in those days of desperation he again and again threw up chances and flung back good bargains which did not suit his unique and erratic sense of honour. The fame of having first offered Shaw to the public upon a platform worthy of him belongs, like many other public services, to Mr. William Archer. I say it seems odd that such a writer should not be appreciated in a flash, but upon this point there is evidently a real difference of opinion, and it constitutes, for me, the strangest difficulty of the subject. I hear many people complain that Bernard Shaw deliberately mystifies them. I cannot imagine what they mean. It seems to me that he deliberately insults them. His language, especially on moral questions, is generally as straight and solid as that of a bargee, and far less ornate and symbolic than that of a handsome cabman. The prosperous English Philistine complains that Mr. Shaw is making a fool of him, whereas Mr. Shaw is not in the least making a fool of him. Mr. Shaw is, with laborious lucidity, calling him a fool. G.B.S. calls a landlord a thief, and the landlord, instead of denying or resenting it, says, Ah, that fellow hides his meaning so cleverly that one can never make out what he means. It is all so fine-spun and fantastical. G.B.S. calls the statesman a liar to his face, and the statesman cries in a kind of ecstasy, Ah, what quaint, intricate, and half-tangled trains of thought! Ah, what elusive and many-colored mysteries of half-meaning! I think it is always quite plain what Mr. Shaw means even when he is joking, and it generally means that the people he is talking to ought to howl aloud for their sins. But the average representative of them undoubtedly treats the Shavian meaning as tricky and complex when it is really direct and offensive. He always accuses Shaw of pulling his leg at the exact moment when Shaw is pulling his nose. This prompt and pungent style he learnt in the open, upon political tubs and platforms, and he is very legitimately proud of it. He boasts of being a demagogue. The cart and the trumpet for me, he says, with admirable good sense. Everyone will remember the effective appearance of Cyrano de Bergerac in the first act of the fine play of that name, when instead of leaping in by any hackney door or window, he suddenly springs upon a chair above the crowd that has so far kept him invisible, a French phrase. I will not go so far as to say that when Bernard Shaw sprang upon a chair or tub in Trafalgar Square, he had the hat in battle 
or even that he had the nose terrible. But just as we see Cyrano best when he thus leaps above the crowd, I think we may take this moment of Shaw stepping on his little platform to see him clearly as he then was, and even as he has largely not ceased to be. I at least have only known him in his middle age, yet I think I can see him, younger yet only a little more alert, with hair more red but with face yet paler, as he first stood up upon some cart or barrel in the tossing glare of the gas. The first fact that one realizes about Shaw, independent of all one has read and often contradicting it, is his voice. Primarily it is the voice of an Irishman, and then something of the voice of a musician. It possibly explains much of his career. A man may be permitted to say so many impudent things with so pleasant an intonation. But the voice is not only Irish and agreeable, it is also frank, as it were inviting conference. This goes with a style and gesture which can only be described as at once very casual and very emphatic. He assumes that bodily supremacy which goes with oratory, but he assumes it with almost ostentatious carelessness. He throws back his head, but loosely and laughingly. He is at once swaggering and yet shrugging his shoulders as if to drop from them the mantle of the orator which he has confidently assumed. Lastly, no man ever used voice or gesture better for the purpose of expressing certainty. No man can say, I tell Mr. Jones he is totally wrong, with more air of unforced and even casual conviction. This particular play of feature or pitch of voice, at once didactic and yet not uncomrade-like, must be counted a very important fact, especially in connection with the period when that voice was first heard. It must be remembered that Shaw emerged as a wit in a sort of secondary age of wits, one of those stale interludes of prematurely old young men, which separates the serious epics of history. Oscar Wilde was its god, but he was somewhat more mystical, not to say monstrous, than the average of its dried and decorous impudence. The two survivals of that time, as far as I know, are Mr. Max Beerbohm and Mr. Graham Robertson, two most charming people. But the air they had to live in was the devil. One of its notes was an artificial reticence of speech which waited till it could plant the perfect epigram, its typical products were far too conceited to lay down the law. Now when people heard that Bernard Shaw was witty, as he most certainly was, when they heard his moths repeated like those of Whistler or Wilde, when they heard things like the seven deadly virtues or who was Hal Cain, they expected another of those silent sarcastic dandies who went about with one epigram, patient and poisonous like a bee with his one sting. And when they saw and heard the new humorist, they found no fixed sneer, no frock coat, no green carnation, no silent Savoy restaurant good manners, no fear of looking a fool, no particular notion of looking a gentleman. They found a talkative Irishman with a kind voice and a brown coat, open gestures and an evident desire to make people really agree with him. He had his own kind of affectations, no doubt, and his own kind of tricks of debate, but he broke, and thank God forever, the spell of the little man with the kingle eyeglass who had frozen both faith and fun at so many tea-tables. 
Shaw's humane voice and hearty manner were so obviously more the things of a great man than the hard gem-like brilliancy of Wilde or the careful ill-temper of Whistler. He brought in a breezier sort of insolence. The single eyeglass fled before the single eye. Added to the effect of the amiable dogmatic voice and lean, loose, swaggering figure, is that of the face with which so many caricaturists have fantastically delighted themselves, the Mephistophelian face with the fierce tufted eyebrows and forked red beard. Yet those caricaturists in their natural delight in coming upon so striking a face have somewhat misrepresented it, making it merely satanic, whereas its actual expression has quite as much benevolence as mockery. By this time his costume has become a part of his personality one has come to think of the reddish-brown Jaeger suit as if it were a sort of reddish-brown fur, and were, like the hair and eyebrows, a part of the animal. Yet there are those who claim to remember a Bernard Shaw of a yet more awful aspect, before Jaeger came to his assistance. A Bernard Shaw in a dilapidated frock-coat and some sort of straw hat. I can hardly believe it. The man is so much of a piece, and must have always dressed appropriately. In any case, his brown woolen clothes, at once artistic and hygienic, completed the appeal for which he stood, which might be defined as eccentric healthy-mindedness. But something of the vagueness and equivocation of his first fame is probably due to the different functions which he performed in the contemporary world of art. He began by writing novels. They are not much read, and indeed not imperatively worth reading. With the one exception of the crude and magnificent Cashel Byron's profession, Mr. William Archer, in the course of his kindly efforts on behalf of his young Irish friend, sent this book to Samoa for the opinion of the most elvish yet efficient of modern critics. Stevenson summed up much of Shaw even from that fragment, when he spoke of a romantic griffin roaring with laughter at the nature of his own quest. He also added the not wholly unjustified postscript, I say, Archer, my God, what women! The fiction was largely dropped, but when he began work, he felt his way by the avenues of three arts. He was an art critic, a dramatic critic, and a musical critic. And in all three, it need hardly be said, he fought for the newest style and the most revolutionary school. He wrote on all these as he would have written on anything, but it was, I fancy, about the music that he cared most. It may often be remarked that mathematicians love and understand music more than they love or understand poetry. Bernard Shaw is in much the same condition indeed. In attempting to do justice to Shakespeare's poetry, he always calls it word music. It is not difficult to explain this special attachment of the mere logician to music. The logician, like every other man on earth, must have sentiment and romance in his existence. In every man's life, indeed, which can be called a life at all, sentiment is the most solid thing. But if the extreme logician turns for his emotions to poetry, he is exasperated and bewildered by discovering that the words of his own trade are used in an entirely different meaning. He conceives that he understands the word visible, and then finds Milton applying it to darkness, in which nothing is visible. 
He supposes that he understands the word hide, and then finds Shelley talking of a poet hidden in the light. He has a reason to believe that he understands the common word hung, and then William Shakespeare, Esquire of Stratford-on-Avon, gravely and assures him that the tops of the tall sea waves were hung with deafening clamours on the slippery clouds. That is why the common arithmetician prefers music to poetry. Words are his scientific instruments. It irritates him that they should be anyone else's musical instruments. He is willing to see men juggling, but not men juggling with his own private tools and possessions, his terms. It is then that he turns with an utter relief to music. Here are all the same fascination and inspiration, all the same purity and plunging force as in poetry, but not requiring any verbal confession that light conceals things or that darkness can be seen in the dark. Music is mere beauty. It is beauty in the abstract, beauty in solution. It is a shapeless and liquid element of beauty, in which a man may really float, not indeed affirming the truth, but not denying it. Bernard Shaw, as I have already said, is infinitely far above all such mere mathematicians and pedantic reasoners. Still his feeling is partly the same. He adores music because he cannot deal with romantic terms either in their right or wrong sense. Music can be romantic without reminding him of Shakespeare and Walter Scott, with whom he has had personal quarrels. Music can be Catholic without reminding him verbally of the Catholic Church, which he has never seen and is sure he does not like. Bernard Shaw can agree with Wagner, the musician, because he speaks without words. If it had been Wagner, the man, he would certainly have had words with him. Therefore I would suggest that Shaw's love of music, which is so fundamental that it must be mentioned early, if not first, in this story, may itself be considered, in the first case, as the imaginative safety valve of the rationalistic Irishman. This much may be said conjecturally over the present signature, but more must not be said. Bernard Shaw understands music so much better than I do that it is just possible that he is, in that tongue and atmosphere, all that he is not elsewhere. While he is writing with a pen, I know his limitations as much as I admire his genius, and I know it is true to say that he does not appreciate romance. But while he is playing on the piano, he may be cocking a feather, drawing a sword, or draining a flagon for all I know. While he is speaking, I am sure that there are some things he does not understand. But while he is listening at the Queen's Hall, he may understand everything, including God and me. Upon this part of him I am a reverent agnostic. It is well to have some such dark continent in the character of a man of whom one writes. It preserves two very important things, modesty in the biographer and mystery in the biography. For the purpose of our present generalization, it is only necessary to say that Shaw, as a musical critic, summed himself up as the perfect Wagnerite. He threw himself into subtle and yet trenchant eulogy of that revolutionary voice in music. It was the same with the other arts. As he was a perfect Wagnerite in music, so he was a perfect Whistlerite in painting. 
So, above all, he was a perfect Ibsenite in drama, and with this we enter that part of his career with which this book is more specially concerned. When Mr. William Archer got him established as a dramatic critic of the Saturday Review, he became, for the first time, a star of the stage, a shooting star, and sometimes a destroying comet. On the day of that appointment opened one of the very few exhilarating and honest battles that broke the silence of the slow and cynical collapse of the nineteenth century. Bernard Shaw, the demagogue, had got his cart and his trumpet. He was resolved to make them like the car of destiny and the trumpet of judgment. He had not the civility of the ordinary rebel, who is content to go on rebelling against kings and priests, because such rebellion is as old and as established as any priests or kings. He cast about him for something to attack which was not merely powerful or placid, but was unattacked. After a little, quite sincere reflection, he found it. He would not be content to be a common atheist. He wished to blaspheme something in which even atheists believed. He was not satisfied with being revolutionary. There were so many revolutionists. He wanted to pick out some prominent institution which had been irrationally and instinctively accepted by the most violent and profane, something of which Mr. Foote would speak as respectfully on the front page of the Freethinker as Mr. St. Joe Strachey on the front page of the Spectator. He found the thing. He found the great unassailed English institution, Shakespeare. But Shaw's attack on Shakespeare though exaggerated for the fun of the thing, was not by any means the mere folly or firework paradox that it has been supposed. He meant what he said. What was called his levity was merely the laughter of a man who enjoyed saying what he meant, an occupation which is indeed one of the greatest larks in life. Moreover, it can honestly be said that Shaw did good by shaking the mere idolatry of him of Avon. That idolatry was bad for England. It buttressed our perilous self-complacency by making us think that we alone had not merely a great poet, but the one poet above criticism. It was bad for literature. It made a minute model out of work that was really a hasty and faulty masterpiece. And it was bad for religion and morals that there should be so huge a terrestrial idol that we should put such utter and unreasoning trust in any child of man. It is true that it was largely through Shaw's own defects that he beheld the defects of Shakespeare, but it needed someone equally prosaic to resist what was perilous in the charm of such poetry. It may not be altogether a mistake to send a deaf man to destroy the Rock of the Sirens. This attitude of Shaw illustrates, of course, all three of the divisions or aspects to which the reader's attention has been drawn. It was partly the attitude of the Irishman objecting to the Englishman, turning his mere artistic taste into a religion, especially when it was a taste merely taught him by his aunts and uncles. In Shaw's opinion, one might say, the English do not really enjoy Shakespeare or even admire Shakespeare. One can only say, in the strong colloquialism, that they swear by Shakespeare. He is a mere god, a thing to be invoked, 
and Shaw's whole business was to set up the things which were to be sworn by as things to be sworn at. It was partly again the revolutionist in pursuit of pure novelty, hating primarily the oppression of the past, almost hating history itself. For Bernard Shaw, the prophets were to be stoned after, and not before, men had built their sepulchres. There was a Yankee smartness in the man, which was irritated at the idea of being dominated by a person dead for three hundred years. Like Mark Twain, he wanted a fresher corpse. These two motives there were, but they were small compared with the other. It was the third part of him, the Puritan, that was really at war with Shakespeare. He denounced that playwright almost exactly as any contemporary Puritan coming out of a conventicle in a steep crowned hat and stiff bands might have denounced the playwright coming out of the stage door of the old Globe Theatre. This is not a mere fancy, it is philosophically true. A legend has run round the newspapers that Bernard Shaw offered himself as a better writer than Shakespeare. This is false, and quite unjust. Bernard Shaw never said anything of the kind. The writer whom he did say was better than Shakespeare was not himself, but Bunyan, and he justified it by attributing to Bunyan a virile acceptance of life as a high and harsh adventure, while in Shakespeare he saw nothing but profligate pessimism, the vanitus vanitatum of a disappointed voluptuary. According to this view, Shakespeare was always saying, Out, out, brief candle, because his was only a ballroom candle, while Bunyan was seeking to light such a candle as by God's grace should never be put out. End of section 5, chapter 4, part 1.